Well, please take a seat. Uh, my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to welcome you here this morning. Thanks for coming to spend your Sunday morning with us here. It's uh, fall. It's October. It's kind of weird uh, wanting it to rain. I've never had that in, in October. Uh, but it's beautiful. It's lovely to be outside. And uh, I've been doing that a lot recently. And um, observing some of the houses outside. Um, I wonder if you look at the big massive houses in the street and wonder kind of what goes on inside of those. Uh, we live in a basement suite and so our son Joey thinks that stairs are like the height of luxury. If you have stairs, you must be really rich. Um, I wonder if you think, oh, what would it be like to live in here or see in here or, or have an east wing or own three acres of land? What would we do with it? Well, TV has kind of enabled us to do that a little bit. Um, there's the golden oldie uh, called Through the Keyhole, which was a, a program where you could kind of see into the houses of, 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 of famous people. Um, some of you might not admit to watching this, but there's also MTV Cribs, right? <laughs> That's the one I remember where people open their homes um, and it just so happens that they've opened their homes because they've got massive homes um, with custom-made beds and walk-in wardrobes that are bigger than most people's uh, living rooms. There's something compelling about those programs you can't kind of help but watch. It's a little bit of a car crash, but um, there's something intriguing about it. This morning, I want us to look um, behind the keyhole, to look behind the curtain, to look into a scene of royalty, not Buckingham Palace or any other palace, um, but something bigger. We're invited to a tour to see behind the curtain to the throne room of heaven, to see the Lord of all the universe. To see the Lord of all the universe. And that's what revelation means. Um, the, the word uh, that we get this from is, is apocalypsis which is where we get the word apocalypse from. But it's not a genre or film or a, or a series that you see on Netflix, but it's a revealing. It's a seeing behind the curtain, through the keyhole, behind reality. So Revelation shows us what reality is really like. It sets the present in the invisible realities of the present. We see the reality behind reality. It shows things like they really, really are. So this morning, as you go through the passage, uh, do keep these things in mind. How do you see Jesus? How does he relate to reality? How does he live now in relation to real life? So as we come to this passage, Revelation 1, 9 to 20, right? Revelation 1, 9 to 20. I can see why it's, I almost said 9 there, Revelation 9. That would have been confusing. Um, Revelation 1, 9 to 20. So why don't we pray now as we come? Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we um, don't have to guess what you're like, that you've revealed yourself to us uh, in the person of Christ. As we look to him, we see what God really is like. So as we look at Revelation, a text which is uh, a book that is often confusing and wild and, and uh, has lots of uh, weird and wonderful interpretations, would you focus us on that picture of, of Christ? the reality of who he is, that we really would be able to see behind the curtain. Would you take the words uh, that, that I prepared today and let those things that are of me and that are, are not helpful to fall by the side, but those things that are of you to be etched in our, in our minds, in our hearts, our very souls, that we would see you uh, with the right eyes, with eyes that really do glimpse uh, something of, of who you are. So we ask that your spirit would do that in our midst this morning. Amen. So our tour, tour guide this morning is John, likely to, the be, to be the apostle uh, who had been a follower of Jesus um, 
for all those years. The Apostle John, uh, now in his mid-30s, was old. He had been intensely persecuted and was now in prison um, on an island called Patmos. Uh, so just so you know, uh, this morning we're just going to look at John, who he is and where he stands. And then we're going to look at Jesus, who he is and where he stands. John um, was now in his mid-80s, as I've said. He was persecuted and he was uh, in Patmos an island 40 miles off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And we are told he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was there because of his allegiance to Jesus as Lord, rather than Caesar as Lord. He could not abide by the rules of the emperor of that time, which said that everyone under Roman rule had to worship him, Caesar, as God. So he refuses John um, John refuses to take that pinch of incense and cast it to the altar saying, Caesar is Lord, like everyone else, and is seen by the Roman authorities as a troublemaker, a threat to Roman unity. I guess they could have killed him on the spot uh, because we know that in AD 92, uh, some 40,000 Christians were killed. But perhaps John was too important a figure um, and martyring him would have caused more trouble than it was worth. And so he is banished to the equivalent of Alcatraz, to the island of Patmos, left there to rot. He was therefore brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. And so John is there in Patmos, reflecting on, on his life and his um, imprisonment, on why he was there, what he was doing there, and all that he'd left behind. And Graham Lotz reflects on uh, John's suffering and the challenge to the churches. She writes this. John was in exile on Patmos, cut off from his friends, cut off from his ministry, cut off from opportunities to serve, from traveling, from those who might pray with him or encouraging him. What's your Patmos? Is it a hospital bed, a workplace where you're the only Christian, a small house with small children? Is it a rest home for the elderly? Is it a new city or new job? Being fired from your job or going through a divorce or death of a spouse can put you on Patmos? In what ways have you been cut off, exiled, and placed in solitude? But it was here John did the greatest work of his life and learned more of God than ever. She asks this, can you imagine what John and we would have missed had he become self-analytical, self-pitying, resentful, bitter, and offended? But John refused to let himself be preoccupied with his problems. And how do we know that? Because in the entire book of Revelation, he only mentioned his problems one time, here in the ninth verse of the first chapter. He talks about his suffering. He mentions it just in this point here, because he suddenly has a bigger vision, and he puts that suffering in a different context. John's vision was expanded. He was allowed to see beyond his suffering, and he was allowed to see behind the curtain to see, thing, to see how things really, really were. He had been a follower of the one who called himself the Good Shepherd, and was now himself a shepherd of several churches. And so there he is, on the, the, in the spirit on the third day, it says in verse 10. Worshipping in the power of the spirit one Sunday morning. And he no doubt thinks about the churches that he's been forced to leave behind. Torn apart by persecution, discouraged, fearful, hopeless. Pangs of heaviness, hurt, helplessness would have, would have hit him, I'm sure. How would these people survive? They were going through... A persecution that makes our persecution seem uh, ridiculously easy. Their arms and limbs were being uh, ripped off. A molten lead poured into, into people's heads. 
How would his people, how would these people in these churches survive? Paul would have wondered. But then he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. It resounds, it pierces, it grabs his attention. And the voice says this. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This voice could have done many things to help him. It could have reminded them of past promises to rely on, or it could have been so loud that it kind of zapped his persecutors, his, his, his prison guards, perhaps. It could have revealed a plan to John to, to overwhelm and, and to overthrow the Romans. But no, it says, write on a scroll. Write on a scroll? Seriously, that's the advice you're going to give me when I'm here because of all these reasons and my people are going through all of this? But yeah, write on the scroll. I went to China in uh, 2004 uh, to teach English there with a Christian organization. I shared a, a flat with another guy who loved to receive post. Uh, whether it was a newspaper cutting, a CD, or Cadbury's chocolate, and he'd always be skipping around the flat when he saw those stamps with airmail written on them. He was most excited when receiving a letter. Now, it wasn't as if we were like Hudson Taylor in the 19th century, where like, missionaries would go and they would like, literally bring coffins with them because they knew that they would die there, right? So we had email and phone and, and, and Skype and all these things. But every time he got something in the post, a letter, he was overjoyed. There was some power that there was in a letter that conveyed someone's thought, their care, their expression of love. This voice says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, we've got a God who cares about the church. He wants his presence and his promises to go to the churches uh, through what was going to be written there. You see, the church is not alone. It often feels like it is. John must have felt that in the moment. And so this verse must have been amazingly powerful for him. In verse 12, it says this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Even though the church was being persecuted, even though John is scared for the church, he is allowed to look behind the curtain and he has that revelation. And then the curtain of reality is pulled back. What does he see when he sees things as they really, really, really are? He sees more of Christ, more of Christ as Lord, Christ as cosmic king. We see these um, descriptions and, and pictures that are kind of a bit freaky, I think, to our, our, but we're not meant to draw them. We're not meant to kind of put them in a cartoon and say, oh, this is what Christ looks like. He embodies all these things, but he isn't these things, but he's more than these things. John turns around and he sees a voice and he sees a person, someone he knew, but not as he remembered them. I wonder if you have ever seen something or someone, um, but not as you had remembered them previously. I had a friend uh, called Steve. He was a few years older than me. Our families knew each other well growing up because uh, his mum and my dad were in the same village in Hong Kong together. But he was always a bit brainy, brainier than, than, than most. And he trained to be a doctor at the University in Glasgow. And had been a doctor for a few years when him and my dad were at a wedding uh, they were at uh, together. 
Someone uh, got ill, I think they fell unconscious close to them, and my dad was calling out looking for a doctor. We need a doctor. Is anyone a doctor? Uh, we need a doctor. We need some help here. And people were saying to him, Steve, he's, he's, he's right there. And my dad was like, I know Steve's there, but we need a doctor. Like, this is urgent. We need some help now. Please find that doctor. You see, my dad knew uh, Steve as a baby, as a spotty teenage boy who would come around to our house and play Street Fighter 2 on the Super Nintendo. He knew in his head he had studied medicine, but in his heart, in the heat of the moment, he hadn't grasped who he had become. Not just Steve in a school uniform, but a grown man, a doctor who could actually help in that moment. I think it was only when my dad uh, went to see him in hospital um, sometime later and was actually treated by Steve that he really believed it, that he saw how things really were. The name on the door, the scrubs, the office, people like treating him with respect. Um, only then did my dad see behind that curtain, see how things really were. And that's what John sees in this moment. He sees someone but different to how he had been before. He sees someone like the Son of Man. He describes him in the same language as Daniel the prophet does hundreds of years ago in uh, the Hebrew Bible of a majestic figure who was to come. Let me read Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds in heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's a massive claim for John to make. For someone he'd sat down for dinner with in the past, Jesus was no longer the, the carpenter from Galilee, not even the great teacher who gave epic sermons on the mountain. More than these, John sees him now as a central figure in history with absolute, everlasting, indestructible authority and power. And just John describes what he sees. And in many ways, it's too much to take. It's certainly too much to describe. Notice how he says, it's like this, and it's kind of like this, and then it's like this. He doesn't know how else to describe it. There's lots to say about this vision, but I don't want to focus too much on it this morning. So let me just give a summarizing quote from uh, Daryl Johnson's commentary. He's a, a kind of preacher in Vancouver who's written one, uh, a, a commentary. Um, it's a series of sermons, really, on, on um, Revelation. And he goes through each of these different um, kind of descriptors. So let me read that now. Jesus is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. He's in the high priest's robe in the king's robe girded across his breast with a golden girdle. His priestly work is finished. His head and his hair are white like wool, like snow. He's as divine as the ancient of days, ageless himself, infinitely wise, perfectly clean. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, absolutely pure and intensely purifying. And his feet were like burnished bronze, strong, unmovable, burning away evil wherever he walks. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, distinct, drowning out the empty rhetoric of the lie. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. The universe is his. He is the ruler of the cosmos. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, able to cut to the chase and free us by his truth. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength, overwhelmingly brilliant, spilling over onto his people. 
So the vision is too much for John. He falls on his face as if dead. It's too much. But then Jesus places his right hand on John and, and touches him. He says in verse 17, Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He says to, to John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I am here. I am who I am. I am the beginning and the end. I am. I was killed, but I'm now indestructible. I'm indestructibly alive and I'm here. Don't be afraid because I'm here. And so even though the church was being persecuted, even though you're scared for your people, come look behind the curtain. Look and see what's really going on. I am the beginning and end of all history, all power and authority. I'm the living one who died on the cross, but defeated the enemies of sin and death and now have the keys to set you free. You're imprisoned. You're imprisoned on an island. There's no key here, but to, to, to life, I have the keys. To death and Hades, I open the door to these. Don't fear the emperors and enemies who can kill you. I've burst out of the prison of death and now have the keys to set you free. He says that to John. He reassures him. He puts his hand on his shoulder. I wonder how you need to be reassured today to look behind the circumstances of what's going on in your life, what you see in front of your face, and to look behind the curtain, to look behind reality and see some of what's going on, of what Christ might want to say to you. I wonder if it's a vision of this white head and hair or a shining face to know that God against all odds is gracious, that you don't need to run away or prove yourself, or that his forgiveness and his blessing touch you in the shoulder. Or do you need to see his eyes and his mouth that he wants to cleanse and purify you, that he needs to get up close and personal so that you can know that God is good and that he wants your good despite all suggestions pointing otherwise. Or perhaps you need to see his hands his feet, and know that God is in control, that you don't need to worry that he's got you, that he knows what's going on, that he is able. Or perhaps you need this to see that God gets you, that he speaks to you with sounds of rushing waters. He's not left you alone. He's not, um, his silence is not his absence for now, but his presence is real, and he does want to speak and use all of your circumstances to speak um, to your life. What do you need to hear this morning? How do you need to see that voice from behind and have that right hand touch your shoulder with reassurance and grace and love? Moving on to verse 19. It's another exhortation to write. I hope John had his pen with him or at least practiced his handwriting because it was going to be seen by lots of different people the voice says this, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. And then it talks about a mystery. You see, apocalyptic literature does a couple of things. Uh, firstly, it sets the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. Right? So apocalyptic literature presents the present in light of the future that we can't see yet. But secondly, and more importantly, it seeks to set the present in light of the invisible realities 
of the present. Right? So a lot of the time we think, oh, Revelation is talking about the future and what's happening going to happen then and how it's going to pan out and what all these different things are and how we've got to look at the different years and the dates and the people. And if we just figure that out, we'll know the future. Kind of. But more importantly, it seeks to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. And so it enables us to see behind reality, the reality behind reality. And so mystery here is not um, a puzzle to be solved. Like a lot of people think when something's mysterious, it's like, oh, it's like a murder mystery, something that needs to be solved, or a puzzle, like a word search, or, or um, something that, that needs to be kind of figured out. You know, mystery is not a puzzle to be solved, but mystery is a reality to be revealed. Mystery is a reality to be revealed. And so in verse 20, it says this. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So for John, the reality to be revealed was there. It was Jesus Christ, the son of man, who stood among the lampstands. Now, let me just give you some background on these lampstands. Uh, these aren't the ones that you get, uh, that you plug in with electricity, that you get at Ikea, that you just switch on and off. All our perceptions of furniture have now been shaped by Ikea because it's everywhere now, isn't it? But let me tell you that these were different. They're oil lamps and uh, they need tending to. They are lamps that, that stand on top of these lampstands that need filling, that need oil, that need attention. And so as Paul as, as John, I should say, uh, would, would uh, see these, he would be reminded of the temple where priests would have needed to keep burning um, oil and putting oil in and tending to these lamps throughout the day and night. Every day, every night, it was an illustration and a symbol of God's presence with them. So they were to diligently um, tend to these lamps, to, to put oil in them, to make sure it didn't go out, otherwise they'd probably get in trouble and, and be suspended from their work for a while. It had been an onerous task for the team of priests in the temple, and it required diligence and discipline. It's not like lifting a heavy weight or doing a short sprint. It was more like a team of people constantly doing a relay of, of marathons. It needed lots of care and attention. And so for John, it would have been so encouraging to see someone among the lampstands. He would have felt reassured that it was not just himself praying for the church, caring for the church, looking after the church, but seeing someone there, grateful that someone, anyone was there, and it just wasn't his responsibility, but someone else was there. But of course, it wasn't just anyone. It was Jesus Christ, the cosmic Christ. The Lord of all was in the lampstands. He cares for them. He's attentive to them. He tends to them. And this comes in the form of those letters that are written uh, to the seven churches that we can read about uh, in, the, in the kind of subsequent chapters, chapters one and two, two and three, I should say. And these lampstands are the seven churches in Western Turkey at the turn of the first century. But not only that, there'd be a mistake to see them as only that. You see, seven is the biblical number of completeness, right? And so in another sense, these letters, this care, this presence of Jesus is to all the churches everywhere and at all times. So we are part, you could say, of a, of a lampstand here at St. Peter's Fireside, Robson Square, Vancouver, BC, Canada, North America. Just like 
Christchurch Ephesus was in October 92, or Emmanuel Church in Smyrna 92, or Redeemer Baptist in Thyatira 92. We are part of that, that heritage. And that can be an encouragement to us, I hope. However bleak you feel things are when it comes to the church, whether that's big C or small C, Jesus Christ, he stands among the churches. He is tending to the lampstands, to the lamps. In the past, I've put the focus um, externally when I get frustrated with church things. I've put the focus on how the media mocks churches and clergy and, and Christians. There's loads of shows in the UK that portray the church as insipid, as pitiful, as pointless. It's something to feel sorry for, something that's outdated, that's dying off. We can just laugh at them. Fair game. And I've seen it in some uh, North American uh, shows too, like The Walking Dead. Um, a, a few years ago, the, the, the minister there with a the dog collar was, was horrible. I was like, oh, that's not a very good representation of what a minister of the gospel should be. I've always put it out there, but recently I've not needed to look out there to despair. There's been enough in the church and in here to feel discouraged and to lose hope. I've been chatting with many of you and I've heard of your history of disappointment with experiences with the church in general, and it's a catalogue of, of grief, of disappointment, of sadness. There's lots of layers there, lots of layers to unpack, and, and I'm sorry about that. Some of you had hoped um, that this church might not be the, the first to disappoint you, and so I'm sorry about that. For those who have not been disappointed yet in this church, let me be very Canadian and apologize in advance. <laughs> we like our apologies here because it's going to happen at some point. And it's sad and it's hard and I wish it were different. But it feels like it's not. And so you're probably thinking, gee, Lloyd, thanks for utterly depressing us. I'm surprised people haven't just kind of got up and left. I hear the, the sound of chairs hitting the back here. But the question is, where do we go? Like the disciples would say to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, where else can we go? Because Jesus has stood there among the lampstands. What we see in this passage emphasizes this. It's at the beginning and at the end of the passage there's a central figure, Jesus Christ, but what frames the passage is where Jesus stands, and that's among the lampstands. It's what John sees at first. He sees the lampstands. And it's what's explained right at the end, these lampstands. Jesus Christ, the cosmic king, stands among there. He says, it's okay. He's there. He's there. Even when it doesn't look like he's there, he is. That's what we're to see in terms of reality. He is. He's tending to these lamps. John sees this world in reality and we are to do the same. So what's the reality? What's behind the curtain? What are things really, really, really like? Let me just make a couple of points to, to close here. Jesus stands in the middle of the lampstands, okay? He stands amongst them. Not to the side, not above looking in, not passing through, but among. He stands in the middle. It's his church. He's in charge of looking after these lamps. He's not an absentee landlord who has delegated that authority. He's right there in the midst of it. He's right there in the midst of us. 
In my mind, I have pictures of, of people staying up in the middle of the night on the street, protecting those people and belongings valuable to them. I also have a picture of a parent next to a child's bed as they have a fever, taking a cold towel to their forehead to cool them down, to show them that they're not alone. We can trust him. He stands in the middle of these lampstands. He tends to the lampstands, uh, the, the lamps on the lampstands, and he holds the angels of the seven churches like he holds the stars in his hands. And so there's some debate um, as to whether these angels, because of the Greek word, it just means messenger. So are these human or are these angelic? Either way, Jesus holds them in his hands. His hands are safer than our own. May that be an encouragement and also a relief to our parish leadership team, to our staff, our, our community group leaders, our community in this season, that he stands in the middle of the lampstands, he holds the stars in his hands, and to trust him with all that happens. The next chapter is when Jesus uh, speaks to the, the churches, the angels of the churches in these various places, he deals with them. He doesn't hold any punches. He sees and knows the tenderness and love and the heart that some of these churches have for him. But he also sees the hatred, deception, and evil that there is in some of the churches. And he deals with them. And so he speaks words of encouragement and challenge where appropriate. He speaks words of, of restoration and upbuilding. But he also enacts judgment and fire. He sees rightly so we can trust him with the good and the bad. In care, he will refine us and he'll grow us, but we can trust him. He's not let us go, he's with us. He's in the middle of these lampstands. So firstly, Jesus stands among the lampstands in the middle of the church. But secondly, just as well, Jesus stands among the lampstands because he's actually the light. Churches are the lampstands, not the light. We are the lampstands, not even the lamp. Very unglamorous, I'm afraid, folks. No piece of furniture grows up thinking, oh, I really want to be a lampstand when I grow up. It's unglamorous, but I hope that you'll find it liberating. He's in charge of looking after the lamps because he himself actually is the light. It's his face that is shining like the sun in all its brilliance. You know, the, sun, the sun's light rays take eight minutes to travel to earth. I haven't done the, I can't, I, I take that on authority. I haven't timed it. Um, and it's traveling at the speed of light, right? So that's an enormous distance away. And yet even at this distance, it literally burns our retinas if we stare at it for too long. Like, that's kind of mind boggling to me. And we're told here, Jesus' face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Our encounter with goodness simply to be positioned so as to absorb this glorious light and to reflect it out. Yes, there are ways in which we are to allow that light to shine better in our lives and in our community, but he is in charge of looking after that light, and we are simply to let that light shine. We are to, therefore, welcome reality and invite awareness by seeing things as they really, really are, that he stands in our midst, that he really is God with us. Oftentimes, and I've prayed in the past, and I hear people pray, God, would you be with us as we do this thing, as we try this? Would you be with us? 
The reality is he is with us. We just need help to know that he is with us. To be alive to that, to know that more. We need to become aware of it all the more because we don't need to do a rain dance to convince him to be with us. He is with us. In the person of Christ, he stands among the lampstands. He walks in our midst. He is the one who is Emmanuel, God, with us. We simply need to be more alive and awake to his presence with us. So would you allow these encounters with goodness of Christ to shape our presence and light in this world? Let's see him rightly. Let's see what he's doing amongst us rightly and allow him to shape our vision of reality as a church, as a community, as those who try to be lights in this world, would we reflect him? Because it's his light, it's his lampstands, and he'll do his thing. Let's pray together.